Audio conversation with William Henry recorded Wednesday, January 18th, 2012. I first heard of William Henry when I stumbled onto his work through Whitley Strieber's Dreamland audio interviews, and I was immediately taken by his by his uh, his outlook on things. Uh, he had a very grand, big way of looking at the world, and it really resonated strongly with me. Uh, he labels himself an investigative mythologist, and as lofty as that may sound, it seems pretty accurate. He has been writing and lecturing on the subject of mythology for about the past two decades. I've read a handful of his books, I've seen a bunch of his DVDs, I've seen him give presentations in person uh, about three times, and uh, I, I am continually impressed and taken by, by what he has to say. This interview here is about um, 45 minutes long, and I wish it was longer. I feel like we were just getting warmed up uh, when we had to say goodbye. I look forward, hopefully, to interviewing him again someday and filling in on some of the missing holes here. If you are new to William Henry's work, uh, this audio interview should be a good introduction to his ideas and concepts. If you have uh, followed his work for a long time, hopefully I ask some questions that uh, dig a little deeper into his outlook and to his insights. If any of this is at all interesting to you, I encourage you to go ahead and search out William Henry's website, and uh, he has a lot of video clips on there and excerpts from his books. His most recent book is called Secrets of Scion, and uh, there is a good excerpt available using Amazon.com where you can, uh, there's a little feature called Look Inside, and you can look at the contents of the book, and uh, there's color photographs and uh, that will give you a very good idea of where he's coming from and what he's trying to articulate using this mythic symbolism. Uh, for some reason I just find it fascinating. You know, on, on a, and, I, and I talk about this during the interview, on, a, on some level I don't know if it's, if it's genuinely real. My intellect is challenged, but on a gut level I am completely swept away by, by his work. Uh, having followed William's work for so long, uh, I was delighted to have this time to talk with him, and I hope you get something out of it. Please enjoy. William, I just want to say thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. My pleasure, Mike. We've uh, had a chance to meet a couple of times over the years, so I'm uh, pleased to be here today. Thank you very much. Great, and, and I'm very familiar with your work. I've followed it uh, on and off for about a decade now, and um, you use the term investigative mythologist to describe what you do. And I, I really like that term, but I would love for you just to describe what, what that means to you. Well, it's sort of like you've heard of an investigative journalist. I specialize in investigating mythology. So I just came up with the title investigative mythologist. And it's funny because over the years, I've had quite a number of people who have contacted me wondering how they can become an investigative mythologist. And tell them, hey, it's just a matter of finding an area that really excites you and looking for work that hasn't been done in that area to perhaps clarify a question or perhaps even to ultimately answer it. So you don't have a degree in investigative mythology? Nope. Self-made, self-trained. I just found that that was a better path for me. Hey, and as far as your path, now this is something that, I, that is very important to me. And how has synchronicity influenced your ongoing research? Synchronicity was a huge part, I would say, in my the early days, so to speak. It was kind of a, I mean, I, I started doing this research in 1982 and published my first book uh, in 1996. And in fact, the first version of that book, which was called The Peacemaker and the Key of Life, I did tell more of my personal story in terms of how how important synchronicity was. I mean, it, 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 it just really gave me a sense like I was on the right path and in a sense perhaps being guided in a way. And I made a decision then to, to not publish, to, to republish that book, to actually rewrite it, to revise it and take the story off of me in any sense of self-importance I might have and try to instead put it on the story or the research itself. And I just uh, am kind of glad that I did that because you find so many people that want to put themselves into the story. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've read a pretty well-researched book 
uh, and all of a sudden the author is inserting themselves into it saying, well, what if it's me? Kind of a thing. And wait a minute, this is about me. Oh, hey, whoa, all this research I've been doing, it's, it's about me. And, and what I always kind of chuckle at is to say it's, it's not about you. It's about, uh, it's about the story. It's about the research. It's about providing a service for people to go out and find these, this information, to bring it forward in a, in a way that people can appreciate, they can understand, and they can ultimately then utilize in their own quest. Now, as far as your research, the, the stuff that I have seen, and I've seen a few of your presentations, you know, sitting right there in the audience at a couple conferences, and I have also watched some of your DVDs that I've rented through Netflix, and those, those are mostly just presentations that you've given, but I find that your presentations, for some reason, uh, they really draw me in, and I enjoy how you interweave what would be ancient hieroglyphs from Egypt and and um, pre-Renaissance paintings um, from the early days of Christianity, and then oftentimes you'll interweave those with what amount to you know popular icons, even you know from modern movies and such. And um, what's the process you go through as you as you try to evaluate and look at those those paintings and that sort of imagery? Well, everybody's heard the adage, every picture tells a story, and every picture is worth a thousand words. So I, I really am, in a way, uh, I'm not an art expert, but I am a, a person that is truly inspired by ancient art. And, and I feel that by putting together, gosh, I mean, let me just put it this way, my goal would be if every picture is worth a thousand words, why can't I find 10 pictures that just really tell the whole story? You know what I mean? Uh, a typical presentation, if it's an hour long, I, I might have several hundred images in that presentation, whatever it takes to to convey that point. And what I'm looking for is the the interconnectedness, ultimately, of all things. I mean, I think of the, the as Joseph Campbell used to call it, the monomyth, the one story that was broken into pieces and all human stories are a reflection or shards, if you will, holograms of that original story. And what I try to inspire people to do is to, to kind of open their eyes and be able to see so to the code, so to speak. And the way I teach that code is by showing how it appears over and over again throughout these cultures. And by the time we're done with it, we, we have a, a new language that we're able to speak together a language of symbolism and a language of imagery. And we also have some common ground because people really begin to, to say, hey, wait a minute, I've, I've, got, uh, I've got some real understanding about that. And, and how does this tie into your latest book, The Secret of Scion? The Secret of Scion represents almost a culmination of the 25 years of research that I've been doing, 25 plus years, I should say. Its uh, subtitle is Jesus' Stargate, the Beaming Garment, and the galactic core and ascension art. And what I've done in this book is, is gathered together what I think of as, as the finest collection of ascension art that's ever been put together. I cover the, the, the early Christian, the Renaissance Christian period. I cover Tibetan, Egyptian art, show how they all had this core concept and belief in ascension and that the symbols of ascension repeat themselves or interweave throughout these various cultures. And so... I'm very happy with The Secret of Science. It's a full-color book. It's nothing like this has been put together, and especially uh, not only is it a sort of portfolio or collection of these images, which I literally spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars gathering this artwork, licensing it or going to a place to, to capture a photo that isn't previously published or available anywhere else that I'm aware of. Believe me, I look. Um, so The book is a, a portfolio of those paintings and photos, that collection, but it's also uh, is accompanied by the Gnostic narrative that accompanies these, these paintings and these, and these photos. And what it ultimately is describing is our transformation into beings of light and our ability to put on what they call the beaming garment and become beings of light and then navigate, travel through the gateways that every single sacred tradition tells us exists within our cosmos. 
And and uh, I have only had a chance to read the first chapter of the book. And being familiar with your work, um, it resonated really strongly with me. And uh, one of the images that shows up over and over and over again, this is difficult, obviously, we're doing an audio program, and then we're trying to talk about something visual. But the series of images of Christ and then the representation in some sort of circle or in some sort of, I guess you would say, um, a circle of light or a wormhole. How did those images strike you? And and it seems like you've been following that imagery for years now. I have. That's been kind of a a core of my presentations for a number of years. You're right. This ascension arc, uh, the the Bible talks about the ascension of Jesus. It happens after his resurrection. And, And resurrection is when he, in a flash, transforms himself into a radiant being of light, something that Shroud of Turin researchers have recently verified, December 2011. Italian researchers announced that they believe that the Shroud of Turin was created by such a uniform or radiant burst of energy in a flash. So we're talking about a, a relic here of a person's metamorphosis or resurrection into what's called the glory body, the light body, the rainbow body. Every tradition has a term for it. And in Christian art or Christian tradition, there is a belief that not, not only did Jesus ascend and go to a a throne, which is called Sion, which we can talk about that too. But the the Christian tradition promises that Jesus will also return. And it further states that Jesus will return the same way he left. And so when you go over to Christian art, since about the fourth century AD, you started seeing images of Jesus in either a winged ring an orb often filled with blue light that's held aloft by winged beings, or you see him ascending into the heavens through an, a, a circular object, an orb of some kind that's composed of concentric rings. Now, when I look at concentric rings, I'm thinking a couple of things. I'm thinking gateway or vortex. I'm thinking sound waves or vibrations, which are also symbolized by concentric rings. But it's also possible that It's a description of levels of mind or perhaps even dimensions that he is traveling through. Either way, beginning in this very early time in in terms of the Christian tradition, Jesus is associated with some kind of a winged vehicle. It's not a flying saucer, as some might suggest. It instead is some kind of a light vehicle or an energy vehicle, because remember, he is actually a being of light who is portrayed traveling through these concentric rings. And so today, when we look at that symbolism, we don't talk in terms of uh, a hole in heaven as as they did in the ancient times, like at the crucifixion, a hole was opened in heaven. Same thing happened at the baptism of Jesus. A hole was opened in heaven. In the Gnostic text, when they talk about the ascended Jesus returning to, to communicate with the disciples, they talk about just before he appeared, a hole opened in heaven. We don't talk like that anymore. We call holes in heaven stargates or wormholes, rips in the fabric of space-time. And this is what I believe this artwork is portraying, is that Jesus was able to open a hole in space, tear a a hole in the fabric of space-time, and travel to distant places in the cosmos and then return. Now, here's a question I've always wanted to ask you, and this is my first chance to ask you. You know, So I'm perfectly fascinated by these old paintings and this artwork that you use in these presentations. And, um, you know, I'll just use the, the Jesus image in, in the Stargate symbolism that shows up repeatedly. And I've always wondered how these symbols emerged. And, and it seems like there's two different ways that it could have happened. One was there was some sort of apprenticeship for young artists in the early days of the Christian church. And these young promising artists would have been initiated into some sort of perhaps like a secret brotherhood of, of, of knowledge. And I just wonder if, if they would then have been told in a, um, you know, almost like a, a ritual form, you know, what symbols to use and those symbols would have been controlled by the church. And the other way to look at it, um, do these symbols simply well up from the 
collective consciousness of that era where these painters simply uh, artists that were were painting from a very deep creative source and that's how it these these images made it to the canvas well that's that's a really great question and I don't have the ultimate answer for it I mean I can show in presentations how especially the Christian concepts of Ascension arc actually artwork actually came from Egypt and so that would be a, a, a very good source place for for starting a, a quest to kind of peel back the, the 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 source or origin point of the symbolism. But then I also go with the concept that some of these artists were truly inspired. There's no question about it, and they're tapping into a another level of mind that perhaps even they themselves had visionary experiences. Uh, they're artists like Hieronymus Bosch's. Is, is a prime example of an artist who portrayed the ascension and other imagery such as that in an extraordinary way. And it was either that he was trained by people who had had that visionary experience or he had that experience himself. We don't know the answer. He never said. Um, I do also go along with the idea that there are some, some, some wise people, some maybe even some wizards out there that in the ancient time that possessed the, the full code, if you will, and would hire some of these master painters to encode pieces of the code for posterity or for a particular king or a ruler. So that, that also happens. And there, there are several key paintings that we know the artist was hired by uh, other individuals who provided them the code, the context, and all of the, the detailed knowledge that was encoded within the painting, um, but we don't know who that person is. And so that's a, a really a kind of an interesting mystery to follow up on in and of itself. Yeah, okay, that's a great answer, because that was, as I was preparing these questions, you know, that was those two, you know, two different things, and, it, and it's almost both are very interesting, and, and I suspect, you know, as you just said, you know, I have no way of knowing without, and maybe it's impossible to know, but that I think it's a combination of both, so I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and that's the thing is that I mean, when I was a kid, I used to go to my grandmother's house. She'd make me a plate full of Rice Krispie treats and give me a stack of Highlights magazines, and I'd disappear for hours. And remember, the, I don't know if you ever read Highlights oh, magazines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But remember those find the missing things in the picture or find the hidden things in the picture, right? So they present this picture, and there's 15 things hidden in that drawing or, or that picture, and beside it was a list. Here are the 15 things. Can you find them? I essentially am doing the same thing as an adult with this artwork, but the problem is there's no key. There's no list provided. Here are the 15 things encoded within this painting. You have to find those yourself. And it's you find that there are many, many layers of, of symbolism with, within many of these paintings that are speaking to different levels of your mind, levels of your spirit. The color is significant. The geometry is, is significant. The setting is significant. The story that's being told. It's, uh, remember, they didn't have TV then. This is what they had. And this, this is why this artwork was so important because it was for typically only for the elite. They didn't have museums where ordinary people would go to appreciate this art. This artwork was for the elite, and it, the artwork was coveted. It was stolen. It was, uh, it, wars were fought over it. Blood was spilled over much of this artwork because of the mystic secrets that, that is contained therein. Now, a few years ago, I read the Gospels. I grew up Lutheran and, you know, have these memories of Sunday school and learning about the Bible and such. And uh, it was only as an adult that I went back and reread uh, the four Gospels. And uh, when Christ returns after the crucifixion, and um, you refer to this as um, ascension art in these in this art. Uh, so, but there is a section of the New Testament where these stories are retold. And... I, I was absolutely thunderstruck 
you know, reading it for the first time as an adult, at how bizarre these stories are, where Jesus interacts with his disciples, you know, in this different form. And I feel like I'm very intimate with the the UFO literature, especially the abduction literature. And these stories in the Bible have that same flavor of high strangeness. So I, I thought it was very interesting that artists were trying to paint something symbolically that would tell the same story of something that is extremely strange, even now looking at it um, and trying to decipher the meaning of, of what happens after the crucifixion. Yeah, I agree. And th- this is why the Gnostic stories are so important, because, of course, the, the Bible is considered the living word of Jesus or the words that the living Jesus spoke, whereas the Gnostic Gospels, the Nakamati Library and such, are considered to be the the, the teachings of the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus. So there's a big differentiation right there. I tend to go with the Gnostic side of it because I know that these the, the disciples of Jesus and Mary Magdalene were highly trained esoteric initiates. They're presented in Sunday school as these kind of wandering sort of dummies in a way. And that's not true at all. And once you start to appreciate the the level of sophistication of these people and the knowledge that they had access to, you're you're astounded and you're dumbfounded. And you realize, hey, wait a minute, the the church has really been holding back on us here. I mean, how much more fun would Sunday school have been if you learned it was all about light beings and stargates? I mean, wow, that changes everything. And once you start to then equate that to yourself as well— where you recognize that, hey, these teachings are here for the benefit of us so that we can not, not worship a being who transforms himself into a being of light and accesses these gates, but so that we can follow him. And without the proper instruction, we're not going to be able to follow him properly. And I'm not talking about in a devotional or religious sense. I'm talking about, I think, in a literal sense that that these beings are from are a vastly advanced tribe of beings. They've been here for a very long time. Jesus isn't the first member or avatar of this tribe of beings that has sought to deliver these teachings. He's one of several. His message is derived from a lot of the ancient texts. And what we're told by the Gnostics is that this is very personal to us. We are all in the process of of tuning into this Christ consciousness and becoming Christ-like beings. And in fact, that's our, our mission on earth, wow, which is, of course is heresy to the church. Yes. Yes. And it is like, uh, how to say it? It's like candy to me. Uh, you know, this is, this is exactly what I find inspiring in a way. Um, you're obviously finding some of your inspiration in, in like these old paintings in hieroglyphs and such. Could you tell the story of the whirling dervish on the Nile? I thought that was really impressive. Uh, I've heard you tell it before, and, and there were some photographs in the new book of, of exactly that story. Yeah, thank you for asking that. I love that that story. It was kind of a, a, a real turning point for me in my research. When I had done, I've read quite a few books on Egypt before I actually went there for the first time in, in 2004. And I had developed this theory based on my research into the story of Osiris and the, the Egyptian resurrection teachings that, that the human body, in fact, is, is the stargate that we're looking for. From our divine spark, from our soul's perspective, our body is the ladder to heaven. It is the stairway to heaven. And everything in the ancient Egyptian resurrection teachings was about transforming that body into a being of light. And that being of light also being one and the same with a wormhole, because once you achieve the light body, the rainbow body, the resurrection body, you're able to open stargates, holes in space, and travel throughout the cosmos. So I had been working on this theory. I get to Egypt. We're on a cruise ship in Luxor, and I had had a phenomenal time uh, up until that moment in, in Egypt. I mean, I was totally fulfilled by everything that I had seen. And we're on the cruise ship. They, uh, we get a phone call in our room. It's, it's uh, the entertainment director on the, on the cruise ship saying, hey, the belly dancer starting in 30 minutes. It's time to come down and, and watch the belly dancer. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just going to pass. I'm really enjoying just kind of kicking back in my room and thinking about all that, that's happened. 
Phone rings another 15 minutes later saying, the belly dancer is about to start. You got to come down and watch the belly dancer. So finally, I, I relent. I go down into the room where they're, they're having this, this supposed belly dancer. And there is a belly dancer. But after the belly dancer, here comes this whirling dervish. A whirling dervish dancer is a, is, a, is a member of a mystic Islamic tradition that goes back over 800 years. And what happens is, is he starts spinning in place. He's going into a deep state of meditation, and he's got a skirt that's spinning around his body. And I'm looking at this going, my gosh, that skirt looks just like a spinning UFO. And I'm just absolutely blown away and really thrilled that I came down to watch this. Well, a moment later, he pulls out a second skirt and starts spinning it around his body. And all of a sudden, my mind is just absolutely blown wide open because the shape of these two skirts, one on top at the level of his shoulders and above and the other at his waist and below, formed the exact same shape as the way modern science portrays a wormhole. And I, I immediately dubbed this the wormhole dance. This guy was performing right before my very eyes this whole process of, of birth, of growth, of ascension, of metamorphosis into a being of light, and then back into rebirth, all through wormhole symbolism. And, and the, the imagery that you have in the book, it's very funny. There's the, the, the swirling garment that he's wearing looks almost metallic in, in its, the way it's photographed. Is that those, are those photographs that are included from that very first experience? Yes, those are the photos that are in the Secret of Scion are from that, that first experience. And you might be seeing kind of the light source on him, um, but you can clearly see the wormhole symbolism. I went up to the dancer afterward and I said, gosh, I was just blown away by what you did. What, what, what were you doing? And he said, well, I was telling this ancient story of the unity of heaven and earth. And I'm like, golly, I need to bring you back to MIT with me where they're trying to work on stargates and wormholes and take you to Stanford and all these other places because your dance encodes the answers they're looking for. Yeah. And I loved that story. Um, now here's, there's one more story that you told, and I saw this at a, at a presentation, uh, just as far as my own set of, of, uh, you know, the, the path that I'm following, I, I just make sure to, to not ignore what might, what some people might consider the mundane or the normal or just the everyday stuff that's around us. I feel like, um, you know, if there is a higher source, it wouldn't serve it to only speak to us in lofty platitudes through ancient artworks. And you showed an image and it was just a digital photograph of an exit map on the back of a hotel door. And I found that I was sitting in the audience when you when you talked about that exit map and I found it genuinely moving and that image of the of a you know completely mundane map uh, you know how to get out of the hotel in case of a fire. I thought that was as moving as any of the uh, images coming out of the Louvre or from the walls of, of uh, you know the pyramids. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I yeah, that was uh, kind of a eureka moment for me too. I mean, it, as you recall, I was on a 2012 panel uh, at, at the Conscious Life Expo. I think Sean David Morton, David Wilcock, Danny and Brinkley were on that panel. Um, and then the next day we were to do a 2013 panel, which is kind of trying to speculate about what, what would be the aftermath of 2012. And I just remember that the 2012 panel was, had tended to go kind of, uh, more gloom and doom, more to the gloom and doom side. And I remember sitting in my, in the, in the hotel room at the LAX Hilton that next morning, getting ready for the next day's panel and sort of just contemplating, well, what am I going to talk about? And all of a sudden, I, I look over at the back of the door, and I see what looks to me like the plan for a, a Mayan temple. I mean, it's an absolute ringer for the design of the, the, the temple at, uh, of inscriptions, at, or the temple at Palenque. And I'm thinking, what, what is the, <laughs> what's the diagram of a, of a Mayan temple doing on the back of this hotel room? And so I get up, and I walk over there. And sure enough, it's, it's actually the, the, the schematic, the plan for the LAX Hilton, which looks very much like, from the top-down view, 
a, a Mayan temple. And, and as you're saying, what it actually told was, hey, in case of fire, uh, here's your exit strategy. Don't use the elevator. Take the stairs. Know where you're at. Know where you're going. And right then, it just really clicked with me that, hey, this is a, a really apt kind of metaphor for what we had talked about the day before, where they were talking about all this, these cataclysmic earth changes coming with 2012 and a fire or vibration coming from the center of the galaxy that was going to zap us all and all this stuff like that. And what, what I ultimately ended up saying was, is that, hey, this is a great uh, food for thought for us, because if what these guys were saying then is true, and I asked them point blank, I said, you know, what, what's your exit strategy? How are you going to, how are you going to leave this realm? What if fires do start to envelop the, the planet? What if these new cosmic energies are switched on and they're too much to handle and we're, quote unquote, on fire? What are you going to do? And I mean, I took it one step further, too, because I then further noticed that the, the door that had that diagram on it was next to a, a set of mirrored doors. And I kind of remember saying that, sadly, too many of us are looking at the mirrored doors and kind of enamored with what we see in the mirror, and we're not really focused on the real door, how we're going to ultimately leave here when it's our time to go. Yeah, that was, I just, for some reason, I found it very touching, you know, mostly that, that uh, it, it impressed me that you were just aware enough to see these this symbolism that's, that I, I feel strongly is around us at all times. It just, we don't have the observational skills to perhaps see it. Yeah, and that's what makes this so fun. You know you're learning when you start to see it all over the place and can understand it. I mean, so much of it just is, is wallpaper to us. I mean, I'd like to point out when I take people, for example, to the Temple of Hathor at Dendera, which is one of my favorite ancient Egyptian temples, I, I note that, or I can say the same thing over at uh, Deir el-Bahari, Hatshepsut's temple, that the architectural principles that you see at these temples inaugurated an architectural design that is used worldwide. Every single home, every single office building utilizes these same architectural principles that came from these places right here. And we, we don't appreciate that because we don't think about, hey, why, why do uh, office buildings look the way they do? Why do houses look the way they do? Where did all this come from? And when you start kind of following your curiosity, that's when you find some really interesting things. Yeah, and, and uh, another resource you use throughout your presentations and in, in, in your books is uh, just simple wordplay, you know, almost um, anagrams and puns. And there's a handful of researchers who do this that, uh, and I'm always amazed that this is taken so seriously. I enjoy it. I'm not quite sure how much to trust it, but I, but I find it fascinating. I remember you talking uh, about, uh, I'll just use one example, the term shock and awe. Uh, mm -hmm. During our original uh, drive into Baghdad uh, in 2003, and and you had your own take on that term. I did. Um, shock and awe was is one of the ancient names for the divine presence, the Hebrew divine presence, the divine presence of the especially the feminine shakana, shock and awe. And I started uh, really paying attention to that. I mean, the Bush administration was just great. Uh, from that perspective, because George W. Bush was always talking about the war on terror. He, he never could pronounce the word terror. He was always trying to put the John Wayne Texas twang on it, and it was always the war on terror. Now, I always like to comment that terror is actually the Buddhist goddess of compassion and love. So is he saying that we're engaged in a war on compassion and love? And largely, the answer at that time was absolutely yes. But what I'm utilizing there is a is is an actual research tool that a lot of scholars just they think is absolutely crazy, but uh, it works and I I utilize it um, because it it leads to connections that you normally don't perceive. I mean the left brain is trained that oh everything's got to be logical it's got to be exactly a certain way but the right brain is just always wanting to take you out into other domains and and make uh, seemingly uh, disconnected things connect and make sense. And that's part of what using this phonetic resonance and the puns uh, does for me. It's called the language of the birds. The alchemist Falconelli 
uh, actually said that the language of the birds was English and that it in fact is the language of the gods and that it's possible that you can use the English language as sort of a de decoder ring and you can interpret the meanings of ancient words in English by the phonetic resonance of those words. Now, that's, that's a lot for a lot of people to swallow, but once you start to utilize it and see it working, you, you, you can rely on it to some extent. Uh, but I'm with you. I mean, you, you definitely want to try to bring it back to science as much as possible. You can't just make a connection and then it not be there. Uh, so that's sort of the trick of, of using that, that technique. Um, there two of the, the researchers that, that I was uh, hinting at that had used this, you know, used the same wordplay, and there's sort of delight in it, and I have to say. Um, I mean, as silly as it sounds, it is sort of fun uh, to, to go down that road. Uh, two of the researchers, one is Jordan Maxwell, and mm -hmm. the other is Neil Donald Walsh, who both, who both uh, sort of revel in this wordplay. And uh, Neil Donald Walsh, who, who claims to channel directly from God in his written works, uh, he, I guess it would be more the channeled voice of God, says, uh, you know, when, when Neil Donald Walsh asks, um, you know, well, how, do you, how, does, how does this happen? And the, the God voice replies, um, this is simply the way the universe likes to organize itself. <laughs> That's a great answer. I love it. Yeah. Um, now, as I listen to your talks or watch your presentations, um, earlier you said you use you know several hundred slides in a one-hour presentation, and I'll, and I'll tell you, as as someone sitting in the audience watching that, you know sometimes those slides they seem to go fast and furious. So at the beginning of the presentation, there's a there's a sort of a formal logical side to my mind that you know says ah okay you know here's an ancient egyptian hieroglyph and you you point out some of the imagery that's associated with that and then we jump to another image and then we jump to another image and at a certain point the logical side of my brain just simply can't keep keep up and it gets overloaded mm -hmm. and um so somehow during your presentations and i would even say during reading your books i am forced to abandon my intellect and then i feel like i can follow you much better using my intuition, if that makes sense. It, it seems like some of your concepts are so bold and it forces my logical side of my mind to sort of uh, shut down and, and I have to, um, you know, use my intuition or my gut, let's say, to, uh, to better tap into what you're trying to say. And, and I will say that I reap the benefits more effectively when I go from an intuitive side. Um, and in a way, this might be how like a, like a college professor in the philosophy department might describe uh, mythology, that it, that it taps into your intuitive side rather than your logical side. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Mike. And that's what, uh, to me, makes it it's so much fun because... The, the logical left brain stuff isn't always correct. And so what I try to do is present the evidence, and most of the evidence is, is found in these paintings, and, and try to allow people to come to their own conclusions. Um, I'm, I try not to be one of those people that says, hey, I, uh, this is the way it is and the only way it can be. Instead, I'm trying to present some possibilities here and some pathways that will hope, hopefully lead you in your own path to your own greater understanding. Yeah, and uh, how would you define mythology as it's emerging in our present day culture? Well, I, I haven't really looked at that too deeply. Um, I, I should because when you look at movies especially, you're seeing that the ancient gods are being reborn almost on a daily basis and we're rewriting the human story in these movies and part of me says hey this is really exciting but then another part of me says gosh you, you've totally lost the plot you know and that's why I, I don't pay as much attention to it as as perhaps I should and I'm thinking of Christopher Knowles, who I know you have interviewed on your on your show Revelations, and mm -hmm. and he's he's a, a you know a, a great resource to how mythology is is emerging in our present day. Here's another question: so just to how things are interacting present day, how would you define the role of the shaman 
Like I, I can visualize a shaman in an ancient, uh, you know, or let's say a primitive tribal village, but I'm, I'm wondering how that role is being fulfilled now in our, in our modern culture. Well, more and more people are identifying themselves as shamans. I mean, there are, if you uh, accept all the people that are claiming to be shamans as shamans, then there's thousands upon thousands of them worldwide. Many of them have websites these days. And this ancient shamanic knowledge is being shared on a global level. So I would say that the shamanic tradition is is very much alive. You have people that are taking uh, pleasure trips to areas where they can, like, for example, take ayahuasca trips and things such as that. I mean, that's astounding. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. And I think people are doing it because perhaps in past lives, past incarnations, they they might have had deep access to some of this knowledge and want to continue their pursuit. Or perhaps they didn't have access to it as much as they would like. But now you can go anywhere virtually on this planet that you you would like to go and experience this these ancient teachings firsthand. And I was kind of, uh, the, the reason I asked that question is because, you know, the shaman is like an open-ended term, right? It's, you know, a mystic, a shaman. It's very, very hard to pinpoint what that, what that might actually mean. And I would say that, you know, you are playing the role of a shaman in, in some way. And, uh, and, and I definitely have reaped some of the benefit from that. Well, thank you, Mike. I mean, I, I kind of have viewed myself not so much as the shaman, but rather the person that's that's pointing people towards the, the doors and the gates that will lead you into those higher realms. And if you choose to go through the gate, then you you will likely encounter a shaman of sorts who will be there to assist you. I've never really tried to be the one standing in the gate taking people through. That that takes a huge amount, in my view, a huge amount of training and uh, more knowledge than than I presently possess. So that's why I try to just kind of play the, the intermediary role still. But um, thank you for saying that. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, and, I, and I say this as, a, as someone who, oh, I guess I, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, reaping the benefits of your big ideas. Um, well, I was just going to add to that that, I mean, I feel like I, I, in my mind I view myself as a service provider. I read all these books, I distill the information, put it together in a package that people can access, I take people on tours, I, I go out and try to, to, to show them uh, things that they've always wanted to see. And so that's kind of the role that I see myself in as more of the service provider than as opposed to a, the shaman slash guru slash whatever. Great. Great. Hey, um, now here's a question. This is totally personal from my own. Uh, you know, we, earlier in the thing you said, you know, like, you know, some of the people's writings are all about me, me, me. This is a, this is a question for me. Um, now you're an investigative mythologist. Do you have any insights into um, the imagery of the owl? And I ask this be- just simply because I have seen a lot of owls under very odd circumstances. I've, I haven't paid a lot of attention to the owl. I did look at it briefly when I wrote my book about the art and symbolism of the Dome of the U.S. Capitol, Freedom's Gate, because the, 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 the layout for the U.S. Capitol, the plan of the roads around the Capitol, in some people's view, actually is derived from the owl or is meant to symbolize the owl. Then, of course, there's the owl that was pointed out on the, on the $1 bill. But, but that's really the extent to which I've, I've looked into the owl. I, I will add uh, the ancient Egyptians... Uh, revered the owl as one of the sources of their language. And so this could be one of the early references to the language of the birds, where the the owl becomes then the totem for the the source of of the Egyptian hieroglyphic system. But I haven't been uh, doing too much on owls. Huh, okay, that's, well, it's, I just had to ask, and that's very funny because just yesterday I stumbled on an image of the Capitol from, uh, looked like a Google Earth image, and someone had highlighted the way the sidewalks and the parks surround it, and, and they pointed out the owl imagery. I had never seen that until yesterday, and I even went so far as to put it on Photoshop and clean up the image a little bit to make that uh, owl image a little, a little easier to read. Uh, so that is so funny that that was the one thing you, you commented on, and I had just looked at that yesterday. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. But it kind of leads you into that sort of 
Bohemian Grove kind of mindset and all that, and that's that's just not my thing right now. Within at Bohemian Grove, they have the big owl there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and, and I do not know why um, the owl imagery has shown up so strongly. Not I won't even say owl imagery. I'm talking literal physical owls have shown up in my life in a way that is very unusual. And uh, uh, I have made an effort to just at least ask because it is a, it is a mystery to me. And so that was as good of answer as any, I guess. Uh, hey, um, is there anything you want to add to this before we say goodbye? No, just want to say thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. It's been, uh, like I say, great running into you over the years. And uh, I, who knows, maybe we'll see each other in 2012. Got a, a Nashville event coming up in April and be doing other events around the country. So you never know. Great. Um, I can make sure that all the links to your uh, William Henry site are on the, the, my show notes. But anything you want to promote besides the book before we go? Nope, that's that's great. Just get the Secret of Scion, everybody. Get it from my website, WilliamHenry.net. It's got a companion DVD called The Light of Scion that's also chock full of images that didn't make it in the book. So really good stuff. Great. All right, Mike. Well, thank you very much. And uh, great. I'll give you a heads up when this is posted. And uh, and thanks for the time. And there may be a point when I call you again. Sure thing, man. Okay. Okay, Take care. Bye. Bye. Uh, This is Mike chiming in at the end here. Hey, I just want to add a few little extra things here. One of them, when when William mentioned the reference about the owl shape to the capital, the way the capital in Washington, D.C. looks when you look straight down on it, the shape of an owl is, uh, is present. It's really there. And I had, I wasn't exaggerating, I had just stumbled on that image yesterday, and I was so taken by it that I did actually... Uh, Photoshop it and play with it a little bit as far as uh, just some tones to make the owl uh, imagery pop out a little cleaner. I have included that on the uh, show notes um, and just that odd little synchronicity. I'd never heard of that ever. All the years I've followed William Henry, all the years I've dug into the um, owl imagery and and then I find it at the very same time that I'm prepping for this uh, interview with William. Now William, uh, oddly enough, grew up very close to me. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, so uh, we did not know each other, but we did go to rival high schools. We are exactly the same age, whatever that might mean. Um, Now, William is a uh, friend of Whitley Strieber, and he is featured weekly on Whitley Strieber's Unknown Country website. William does a podcast series called Revelations, where he talks to people in... uh, Geez, I'm not sure what to say. Talks to people about uh, things like we just talked about. Uh, people in what would be, uh, you know, sort of a uh, contemplative new thought arena, uh, like investigative mythologists. He also interviewed uh, Christopher Knowles, which is an excellent one to listen to. You would have to be a member of Unknown Country to dig through the archives to listen to that one. Uh, if I am not mistaken, usually there's about four or five uh, episodes of his audio podcast posted for free at any time on the Unknown Country site. Um, If you want to dig back into the archives, you would then have to uh, pay a membership fee. Those shows are quite good. Those are worth listening to. And as I said in the very beginning, my only regret about this interview, it just felt far too short. It felt like I was just getting warmed up, and uh, and then we said goodbye. Uh, Hopefully, there'll be a day when I'll get him back online, and we can uh, follow up on what we started here. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. Didn't know what time it was, the lights were low, oh, oh, I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh, some cat was laying down some rock and roll, that is all he said. Then the loud sound, it seemed to fight, came back like a slow voice on a wave of He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'd blow our minds. There's a 
stop.